Welcome to Matthew Felix On Air, coming to you from San Francisco, California. People who create, people who make a difference. Hope you had a great week. I am having an amazing 24 hours, or hopefully 48 hours, um, and today is a big day here on Matthew Felix On Air. But before I go into all the great things going on right now, I have to acknowledge the devastating fires going on both up north and down south. The air is really, really bad here in the city, as it has been now for a few days. But I'm sure that what we're experiencing here is nothing compared to what the people who are actually face-to-face -face with the fires um, are dealing with, obviously, including so many who have lost their homes and even their lives. So our hearts go out to them, and our infinite gratitude goes out to those you know, who are on the front lines, including those responsible for forest management, which I can only imagine is a very difficult job when so many of the highest in the ranks care so little, not only about the forest, but about the environment in general. So again, thanks to everyone on the front lines. Okay, on to happier subjects. Uh, first off, I didn't realize until I was preparing for today, but today is my 50th segment, which is really hard to believe. I started just this last February, on February 11th, so exactly, I don't know how many months that is. I guess that's nine months to the day, although I took a month off. So it's, I guess, eight months that I've been doing this show. It seems like a lot longer because there is so much that goes into each show, and I've had so many great guests and had so many interesting conversations. Uh, but I just thought that was kind of a, a cool milestone that, like I said, I only sort of accidentally realized when I was preparing for today. So um, happy birthday to or happy 50th birthday or whatever that would be to the show. And as if that weren't enough, uh, this morning at 12.01 p.m. or rather a.m., my new book, Porcelain Travels, was officially released. As those of you who watched or listened to last week's episode are well aware, Porcelain Travels chronicles humor, horror, and revelation in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers encountered in my travels. I am delighted to say that Porcelain Travels has already been a number one new release in uh, three Amazon categories, travel humor, literary travel, and solo travel. And, uh, <laughs> and my guest is over there burping, so I don't know, I guess she's really excited. <laughs> Really excited. <laughs> um, yeah, there's no burping in my book. There's a lot of other sort of bodily functions. Burping is not one of them. So uh, anyway, so before I went on the air, you need to behave. <laughs> before I went on the air, uh, <laughs> I tried. I told her everything she says and does until she's on on the air is is going to be heard, and that includes burps, <laughs> and that includes her laughs. All right, <laughs> you need to stop. Okay, I'm live and she's doing this to me. I mean, God, it's, she's a respected literary icon in the Bay Area and look at how this is starting. Okay, anyway, as I was trying to say, wait, you can't do that. I, they hear everything. Stop, please stop. <laughs> I wish I could control her mic. All right. <laughs> All right, so where was I? Before I went on the air, Porcelain Travels uh, and Diane LeBeau has just joined. Hello, Diane. Hello, Susan. Hello, Kimberly. Uh, but before I went on the air, Porcelain Travels had made it to number five in travel humor. So thanks to everyone who is helping to make that happen. And uh, if you would like to help with my rankings, um, you can buy Porcelain Travels on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, and just about anywhere else in uh, the paperbacks or eBooks are sold. So please help ensure my future as a writer and go grab a copy of Porcelain Travels. Tomorrow is another big day. Left Coast Writers is throwing me a launch book party at uh, Book Passage in the San Francisco Ferry Building, assuming Linda makes it through this interview. And that's tomorrow, like I said, Monday, November 12th at 6 p.m. If you are local to the Bay Area, please stop by. 
Now, all of my focus right now is obviously on tomorrow, but I also wanted to mention that on Friday, December 7th, at the Cord Madera Book Passage, I will be part of an event um, that's being organized by author, filmmaker, and Lit Wings founder Aaron Byrne, who is a two-time guest on this show. And that event is in honor of both of our books about Morocco, uh, my With Open Arms, Short Stories, Misadventures in Morocco, and her anthology, Vignettes and Postcards from Morocco. Not only will Aaron and I be participating in the event, but so will fellow writers Doug Cordell, Christina Ammon, and uh, Anna Elkins. So that should be a great event, December 7th, Book Passage in Cord Madera. Oh yeah, and the Sunday before, Aaron and Doug will actually be on this show, and we're going to talk all about Morocco prior to the event. So check that out as well. Speaking of guests, next week, Savani Babu is going to be on to talk about dark sky conservation. I'm really excited about that. Dark sky conservation is a movement to basically preserve areas of the sky from light pollution and uh, a noble pursuit and something, like I said, I'm really curious to, to learn more about. On 11.25, the last guest that I will mention before we get into today's show is uh, Willem Boot. Willem Boot is founder of Boot Coffee, and he's a coffee expert who has advised coffee companies, coffee associations, development banks, and governments all over the world all about coffee. And so we are going to talk all about coffee on 11.25, and it's something I've wanted to do for a long time on the show, and I was really excited when uh, Willem agreed to be on the show. Now, though, we're going to talk all about Linda Watanabe McFerrin. Uh, Linda is a poet, a travel writer, a novelist, and contributor to numerous newspapers, magazines, and anthologies. She's the author of two poetry collections, past editor of a popular Northern California guidebook, and a winner of the Catherine Ann Porter Prize for Fiction. Her novel, Namako Sea Cucumber, and I was going to ask you beforehand how you say that, but we'll see if I got that more or less right, was named Best Book for the Teenage by the New York Public Library. In addition to authoring an award-winning travel short, or sorry, uh, short story collection, The Hand of Buddha, she has edited 12 anthologies, including the Hot Flashes, Sexy Little Stories and Poems series. Her novel, Dead Love, was a Bram Stoker Award finalist for superior achievement in a novel. And Linda is a past NEA panelist and juror for the Marin Literary Arts Council. She is also founder of Left Coast Writers, as I just alluded to, and as we're going to talk a little bit more about today. And she has led workshops in Greece, France, Italy, England, Ireland, Central America, Indonesia, Spain, and the United States. A shorter way of saying that would have just been all over the world. Last but far from least, Linda has mentored a long list of accomplished writers and best-selling authors, myself included, but also some other guests on this show, Jasmine Darznick, Diane LeBeau, lots of other people that I've even had on this show owe so much to Linda. So, welcome, Linda. Welcome me. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say you sabotaged me. How, I sabotaged you. With that fizzy water with the bubbles in it. Oh, it's the fizzy water. It's very gassy. It is. It is. Maybe so, and then you made me be quiet for a while. I tried. And while I was having I, I, the water. I tried to make it's you be quiet. hard with the fizzy water. But now that you're able to talk, is that to say you won't be burping? You'll be able to fit the burps into, like, you know, Well, the it depends on if I drink more of that water or not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote I'm, that I'm you're not. I'm <laughs> not going to do it. Um, we do have an audience member here today, Lowry McFerrin, husband <laughs> of, partner of Linda Watanabe McFerrin. So maybe, Lowry, if, you know, if we have any... Our studio audience. Any, our studio audience, if she needs any still water, if you start to get parched, you know, we'll just motion to Lowry, who's here. And he's going to laugh on cue throughout today's show as well. We accept that. We're, I'm trying something new on today's Are show. Are you sure you want him to get the water? 
Uh, we already had that one disaster. <laughs> uh, we did. Yeah, we've already had. Lowry has already locked o- knocked over the lights, <laughs> and I had to uh, redo the whole the whole camera situation. Uh, there was a lot going on. We we can barely hear you, which is intentional. Okay. All right. So I think we're here to do a show. Actually, oops, and I put I put the wrong picture up. Let's go back to both of us. Okay. Poetry, no, Kimberly. That's not that's not what I was talking about. Okay. <laughs> Poetry. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, Kimberly. Poetry, novels, travel writing, and on and on. You've practically written in every genre. Um, writing obviously runs deep deep in your soul. So I'm going to ask you a really obvious question, which I generally try to stay away from, but this is an important one, I think. So how and when did you get started as a writer? Okay, it's it's actually, I started writing when I was six. And I, well before that, really, but my first published book was when I was six. <laughs> And I was in first grade. I was in England at the time, and I self-published it. Self-published. So I was an early example of self-publishing. A of self-publishing. Yeah. Yes, I had that big, thick paper that you have when you're a little kid with the big, fat pencils. And I wrote a, I had those Dick and Jane and Sally books, and I wrote a book in verse. Yeah. And it was called Tom and the Weed. Uh-huh. I don't remember all of it, yeah. but I remember the opening lines, and you know how important a lead is. Oh, it's so important. So this was the lead. Mm-hmm. A boy named Tom, he found a seed. He wanted a flower, but he got a weed. I love it. Isn't it good? I love it. And the, you could, the, the close, the ending, was implicit in the beginning, because oh. you knew by that mm. that Tom was going to have to be satisfied with that flower that weed instead of a flower by the end so the whole poem was about him learning to love the weed oh wow that was my first book that's amazing and it was self-published yes i put it on the back table with all the other books i stuck it in there Uh and um kids read it all right the ones that could read at the time which weren't many no because i recall in your in the notes on this you talked about it was the advanced kids who were doing the writing in the in the back (laughs) Yes, you did. No, I'm serious. I read up on this. Well, I'm just saying (laughs) that we, some of the kids read it and some couldn't read it. Okay. Okay. Did you? So it was fun. It was very satisfying and I was hooked. Yeah. But my first published piece was when I was seven and I wrote a poem for brownies. Yeah. Oh, for the organization (laughs) brownies. And they published it in the paper. Yeah. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. thought it was actually about brownies, the food when I was reading about that. No, no. Okay. It was, it was the brownies. The organization. Yeah. So Where you did you read that? It's out there somewhere. Oh, wow. Yep. You really do do I have, research, I have the don't quote. you? Yeah, I was going to quote you. If you didn't say That's the whole amazing. Tom found a seed, he wanted a flower, but got a weed. I've got it right here in my notes. Do you really? I do. Oh, my gosh. Do you have the rest of it? Because I've forgotten. Um, no, I don't. Dang. But it's out there somewhere. <laughs> we need to dig that up. That would have been great if I could have. <gasps> I found your first story from when you were six years old. I might have have loved you even more than I love you now, Matthew. Oh, my God. This is (laughs) going to be an awesome interview. Okay. Uh, So in addition to getting a really early start, uh, you have undergraduate degree in comparative literature. Mm -hmm. You have a Master of Arts in Creative Writing. So, Mm -hmm. again, writing has always been important and you've known for a long time. question I have, though, is, like I said, you've done so many different genres and a lot of each of different genres. It's not like you just put your, oh, I'm going to try travel writing. No, you've done a lot of travel writing. You've done two novels. You've done multiple poetry collections. So you've really gotten deep into multiple genres. It's I did not a guidebook, too. You did a guidebook, yes, mm-hmm. a Northern, popular, Northern mm-hmm. California popular guidebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my question is, um, you know, most people seem to focus on one or two genres. So I'm just curious how and when are you drawn to one genre versus the other? Um, largely, it's a factor of how much time I have. Okay. 
and where I am emotionally. So when I was writing the poetry, I didn't have a lot of time. So it was something that could fit in between the cracks, and I was terribly depressed and um, and unhappy. I had just lost a daughter. Uh, the poetry came very naturally. I had more time. Actually, a lot of times, uh, when I wrote my first novel, it was actually the outcome of a project for in for my graduate work. Mm. So I was doing a journal about my childhood for this class that I took with Michael Rubin, and it turned into Namako. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on the situation. I was supposed to do another novel after Namako, but my mother had Alzheimer's, and I didn't have a lot of time. And I was also, at the time, employed by Levi Strauss and Company as a merchandiser. So it was... It was like, I don't have time to do this. So I did short stories instead. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's just a function. I will write, and I will fit it in between the cracks yep. in whatever way that I can. Yep. If I'm on a trip, a lot of those travel stories were written because I had to travel for work, and I, they were written in hotel rooms or on the plane. Yep. So Interesting. Yeah, so, so part of it is just the constraints that you're working with. Right. There's yep. a really famous story called The Bound Man, and it's a story about a man who's tied up, and he fights... He fights cats for his um, to survive in the circus, and his circus master's wife falls in love with him and cuts his bonds. And he's always able to kill the cats, but when she cuts the bonds, he's not able to. He's not able to fight, and he's killed. Mm -hmm. So I feel that constraints are very important for people. Mm -hmm. People who have you there's such a thing as having too much time. Yeah, especially if you don't have the discipline to make use of it yourself. Right. I mean, if you have that time and you're really disciplined, then that can be a great thing. So but I must most be of very us are not. So I think that's kind of what I was hinting at. <laughs> you might need to be. You might need that a little more discipline. Truth. Yeah. That could be the truth. Okay. The constraints. Okay, but you just you just mentioned um, poetry, and so I know poetry is a big a big thing for you. You 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 are a poet. You've done a couple collections, like I said, um, but even in your prose, you know, I read Dead Love, which we're going to talk about in a second, for example, and a lot of that prose is very poetic. And when I was reading, doing research for today, I saw other people sort of you know making that observation as well, which I love because I love playing with language and. Um, and that sort of thing. And, and like we just got done saying, even your first book was in verse. At age six, you were already doing verse. And then yes. your first thing that you published with the Brownies was, so. The Brownies. So, or for the Brownies, right? right. Um, that, was, that was also po poetry, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even from very early on, you're already expressing your love and expressing yourself that way and your, your love for poetry. So tell me a little bit more about your relationship with and love of poetry. Well, that started as a child. I mean, I had a little journal that my mother gave me that I would write my poems in, and she encouraged that. Yeah. I came from a very literary family. My mother was a poet. She was also, she was a translator, several languages, um, and she learned them in Shanghai when she was a child. My grandfather was a professor of um, English literature. I have an aunt who's a screenwriter, an uncle who was a journalist so I have a very literary family and it was just something that everybody did the way you sort of um, shared with people mm -hmm. so what do you think um, what do you think poetry's place is in the world in 2018 because it seems to me everything's sped up and it seems to me to really absorb a poem you need to stop you really need to be with it it's not something where we can just digest and, and move on and I read 10 I mean of course you you can read 10 poems I guess on your way to to work if you're you're on BART or whatever, but it seems to me that 
that it's not just something that we consume in the same way that like, you know, I, I, I can read 100 pages on, on Bart of a novel. It's just a different way of processing. So I'm just curious your thoughts because poetry, again, has been so important to you and is so important to you. Where we are today as a society in 2018, if you have any thoughts on how poetry fits in. Well, I think that poetry started, uh, you know, there's Shakespeare and thing and um, plays, and there was a period when poetry sort of stood on its own, but I do believe that poetry started as a lyric. It was the song, and I think it's still present in the world today in song form. Maybe not stripped away. There's some poetry that's stripped away from the music or it's carried in the music, and certainly in academia there's a lot of poetry like that. Kids read poetry all the time in children's books. I mean, I think it's it's also in it's also in advertising. It's everywhere, really. Mm -hmm. It's a mm -hmm. very powerful form, and it can be used in a lot of different ways. We're maybe needing to reimagine the ways that it can be used now, but certainly rap is an example of poetry today. Yep. It's everywhere, really. Yep. We ju it's just not in the places we've expected it to be or where it's been before, and that shows the power of the form to change with time. Yep. And yep. depending on and into a new f into a new use that's perhaps more relevant than sitting down and you know just reading a poem. That that said, I love just sitting down with a great book of poetry and reading it. Yeah. Mary Oliver. Yeah. And it's inspirational as well. It can right. be very inspirational. Right. But I think your point about, for example, rap. I think that's an amazing example or music lyrics in in general. Mm -hmm. um, that it still is there, but to your point, it's it's adapting to the times mm -hmm. and and finding ways to to remain relevant and things like that. So interesting. Okay, so another big passion and aspect of your work, again, both in, in travel writing itself, but then also even in your fiction. You know, travel has a, has a big place in that. Um, Dead Love, for example, takes place all over the world. Namako takes place largely in Japan. So um, can you tell me a little bit about how and why travel has mattered to you and continues well, to matter? My parents were travelers. They loved to travel. Um, my mother lived in many, many places. Um, my dad grew up in San Francisco. But um, I traveled a lot with my family. And we'd always go on these long summer trips all through the, um, well, wherever we were. Dad would take us um, on these long summer trips to different places. Um, I've always loved traveling. And when I was a little child, my mother, who was not a very responsible mother in some ways, but I love her dearly, or loved her dearly, would just put me on a, say, you're going so to such and such a place. Here's here's your money. Get on the bus. Go. Really? So I went to, I even went to nursery and kindergarten with my money pinned to my chest on a public bus. You know, oh I wow. had a little envelope. So I've just felt very natural traveling f since childhood. I just, like, go. And uh, when we were in Japan, we would just, like, we were kids. we it was very inexpensive to hail a cab. We just hail a cab and go somewhere. Yeah, as and kids. the parents were not very. Um, my mother was not very watchful along those lines. She was raised in a boarding school. It didn't really matter. You know, she didn't know really what she was supposed to be doing. But yeah. it was good in a way. Yeah, she gave you the advice, and then you had to follow it. And did you? Did that cause any predicaments? Were there ever any any incidents <laughs> where that was a problem? Oh, a couple of times when I was really little in England, I would ride the big public bus with a huge velvety velour seat all the way to the end of the line yeah because i just because you liked it didn't or? know 
that I should have gotten off oh. or I fell asleep. Oh, you just I would it fall asleep. Yeah. It was really um, and so then the bus driver would have asked me, you know, <laughs> where are you from? And they'd yeah. call and I'd get back to I'd get back home. So I did find that you can get out of those things fairly easily. Which is probably a good lesson to learn. Yeah. Fortunately right? I wasn't kidnapped or killed along the way. That I mean, would have been a more intense way of learning that lesson. Yes. Yeah. A more permanent been. way of learning that lesson. Yeah, and it's and um I think I don't think when I was growing up that People were that watchful of their children. Well, uh, my mother wasn't. Right, right. And we, I did, you know, we did lose a child along the way. So, you as a when you were growing my up. Yeah, my brother. When you were growing up, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's not the best way to raise children yeah. necessarily. But that your your brother wasn't lost because of this kind of thing that we're talking no, about. No, not for traveling. He drowned. Okay. Yeah. All right. Is there one place, um, just to kind of, I'm going to ask just a couple quick more questions, just more sort of almost trivial questions or trivia-like questions related to travel, just out of curiosity, and then we're going to talk about your books. But is there is there one place, because you have traveled so much, is there one place in particular to which you like to return outside of the States over and over again that's sort of a home away from home? Is there I like Tokyo. Tokyo, and why is that? Because I have so many memories of Tokyo. I mean, they're they are through almost all of my books. I mean, I through my novels. Yep. It's woven through my novels. Um, I live with my grandmother in Tokyo at a very young age. I was nine when I first moved to Japan, and um, it just was a mysterious, wild, and magical place. And it still is today. It it's it's always changing. It's very fast moving. It's very exciting. I just love it. And there's so many little, each ward, which are the districts in Tokyo, is so different. Mm-hmm. So you can uh, you can investigate these different wards and go from one place to another. And it feels like, to me, like I'm going to a whole different kingdom. Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, where have you not been that in the sense that's calling to you, that you just haven't for whatever reason, you've, you've it's been calling and it just hasn't Finland. happened yet? Finland. Okay, interesting. Why Finland? What's the uh, call? There's this ice hotel I want to go to. An ice hotel, yeah. Yeah. Those look very cool. Yeah, it just looked great. They put skins on the ice blocks and everything. Right. I'd love to go to Finland. Okay. But normally I don't like cold places, but I would like to go to Finland. Just for the hotel, And yeah. also it's very, it's, um, I like Sweden um, a lot, and it's very no- northern. I think that would be very interesting. Northern. I often go south to warmer climes. Yeah. So it would be interesting to go someplace very um, different from yep. where the normal places I go. Yeah. I don't get as called to um, islands and things as much mm-hmm. anymore. So. Yeah. Uh, is Lowry as much of a traveler as you are? He loves to travel. He loves to travel. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's something we have in common. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, I would think so. That's so good for us to be on the road. Exactly. Together. Exactly. That's 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 why it would be a good thing. All right. So, um so that's sort of some background stuff, how you got into writing, where travel fits in, where poetry fits in. Um let's get specific now and talk about your books. Okay. Or a few of your books. Okay. So, Dead Love. What is Dead Love about? I read it, I know, but can you tell us what Dead Love is what about? What is it about, Matthew? Ooh. Uh, you're not allowed to do that because this is my interview, but I'm going to tell you what it's about. So it is about Erin, who is a young woman whose father is uh, a Japanese executive, high, way, way high up in, in the ranks of some corporation, and they don't have a great relationship. I read this like a year ago. His name is Christian Orison, which means Christian prayer. Oh, oh. Did you know that? No, I didn't okay. know that. Interesting. But I have a story in my new book that, um, well, y- which, of course, you know the new book. So the... Um, the, there's a story where I'm in the West Bank, the shower story, and of course I had to change the name of, of that character, 
And um, to those who are, are watching and obviously haven't read the book yet, this is a very, very curious fellow who gets into a lot of trouble and causes a lot of trouble. And so I changed his name to the Arabic, um, what is it, Sam Samir, which means interesting companion. Oh. And most people aren't going to catch like that, that either. But yeah, yeah so but I like to do English, that as well. So, so much more accessible. No, but not the prayer part. That's Orizen in Japanese. Is a, no. Orizen is a. Oh, it's like from Orard or something. Nim the Latin. In thy Orizens be all my sins remembered. Is what Hamlet says to Ophelia. Of course. In Hamlet. Of Don't course. Yeah, no, I remember. <laughs> I remember. Okay. So anyway, Aaron becomes zombified, and there's a chip that she's got that they're that all these mafiosos basically, and there's a tr there's a right. not Turkish, there's a Japanese name for these mafiosos. Yeah. What's the that? yakuza. The yakuza, mm -hmm. and so and then one of the zombies falls in love with her, tries to change her, doesn't quite succeed. No, he's a ghoul. Sorry, ghoul. That's a right. Ghoul, a ghoul falls in love with her, and she becomes zombified by the ghoul. Right. Okay, so one of the things in all seriousness, and then you have to talk about the book, but one thing that I, that I did love about the book is, besides the poetic language that I just referred to a second ago, which I, I love your use of language, but I loved how, because I don't read a lot of zombie, I don't read a lot of that, that genre, right? And so I liked how you, you bring in a lot of the, I don't know how to say this, the, 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 the traditional, the tradition behind zombie. Like we go to Haiti and we learn about its real right. origins versus just keeping it sort of superficial. It's a dead person who's come back alive. We really sort of learn the history behind zombies and what is a ghoul. And I think isn't there some, there's some jinns yeah, from the, the, that come in as well. Ghoul is one of the levels of jinn. That's it. So yeah. So learning all of that to me was really interesting. Oh, good. Yeah. Good, good, I liked how, how you did that. Okay. So I guess we kind of, but uh, it's do not you the traditional zombie book. No. And I, and I appreciated that. Yeah, and I actually, it was that. inspired by I found this this little newspaper clipping many years ago, and it was about this fellow by the name of Dorison something or other, and um, he ha was being tried for the for the crime of zombification. Mm. It was an actual real event, and I was like, wow. Wait, this was in Haiti, or where was this? So yes, in Haiti. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, he would be tried for zombification. Does that really happen? And at that point, I really began to realize that a lot of the things that we think are fiction are really not fiction, mm -hmm. including some of the hijinks and some of the um, cabals that go on in our government and in large corporations. So I wanted to use, I wanted to write something that was fiction and outrageous, but that was all based on nonfiction. Right. So you didn't know what was a lie and what was the truth. And the things that seemed more like lies were actually the truths. And one of my sources for all of that was The Serpent in the Rainbow, which was written by D Wade Davis when he went out to find the zombie formula. He's an ethnobotanist, and he had actually come up with his formula for creating zombies. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really amazing that you can do that and that there is such a formula. And it tied to fugu, the blowfish, which people have been known to. I did some research. To They would come to life on the slab mm -hmm. um, right before... A if they were lucky, or they might get, um, the coroner might have a good time with them before they came to life. Because people, they it would so suppress their system that they would appear to be dead, but they weren't really dead. Right. So right. I just wanted to take a lot of these things. And then I had an inspiration from one of my um, surrealist uh, mentors, um, Nanos Valoritis, who um, I learned all about, uh, while well we were talking about, breaking taboos and things, uh, transgressive writing. So I wanted to write a novel that was truthful and transgressive. Yeah, yeah, and I think you did. 
Yeah. And I enjoyed it. Uh, one thing that I read about this when I was reading again about this book in preparation for today is, you know, you said um, you talked about how it was the serpent in the rainbow, how that had influenced. And, and you said, you know, and I worked on dead love for years and years. Yes. Well, my novel took me 10 years. And wow. I think that's pretty, pretty common, actually, in, in talking with other writers and things. You always sort of or I always thought before I knew many other writers, I always thought maybe I was just sort of taking forever and sort of an exception. And then you start talking to people and it's like. No, that's actually fairly common. These things do take a long time. But so along those lines, you know, we hear so many writers who struggle to persevere because it can be such a big amount of time. And we hear of a lot of writers who struggle to get to the end of whatever that period is, even if it's five years or two years, it's going to vary for everyone. But you've done so much teaching and workshopping and mentoring. I'm curious what advice you give to your writers who might be struggling to get to the end and really see their projects through to the end. Oh, so first of all, I think you need to learn a little bit about craft. I mean, one of the things that people don't do is put their butts in a chair and work. Right. And I think that's the first thing is you need to actually put your butt in a chair, sit down, and spend a certain amount of time writing. And they don't always do that. So that's the first thing. Um, write every day. Because it's kind of like when I was a kid, I took ballet classes. And the one thing I – and we – my mother used to put me in ballet. And then you'd have to do this performance afterwards, whatever dance class I was in. But you would never go up on the stage to perform if you hadn't had hours and hours and hours at the bar, hours of practice. And it's the same thing with writing. If you're not practicing every day and warming up and doing what you need to do, all of your exercises, then you can't expect to perform on the page. Right. And even these days, if I'm not writing – regularly, I find I have to go through X number of pages of dreck mm -hmm. before I start to get to the good stuff. Right. So you just have to keep writing. And a lot of people are so off and on with it or not committed to it. Well, then it just makes it harder for them when they do that. Right. Then the other thing is to have um, know enough about the craft. Like you're not going to learn. Nobody's going to assume that they can learn to do the um, uh, this one of those fancy the tango or, or, or ballet sure. or any kind of dance with having having a teacher to teach them the steps and what to do so you do need to have somebody teach you the craft yep. which i got in um, school and then um, also my editors were great teachers mm -hmm. they were fantastic yes. teachers yes absolutely all right so hopefully that will help a few uh, writers out there too but and it goes back to what we we're talking about a little earlier about discipline I mean, you really do have to be disciplined. Like you said, you need to be doing it every day. You need to, you know, not just kind of go in and out. It's got to be consistent. You've got to be working on it and, and practice the craft. But share it with somebody who understands the craft, not just your friends. So, um, and th sometimes that means getting the work out there and letting the editors say, well, I would take this piece if you change this, that, or the other. Mm -hmm. And I've had some Larry Haviger and Donald George and John Flynn and, and um, Spud Hilton. Some of the people that published my early work are fantastic editors, and I'm so grateful to them. I remember Larry used to take, I'd have, because I'm, can be a little purple prosy, I would line up these <laughs> adjectives, and he would make this little carrot to all the different adjectives that were lined up, and he'd write, pick one. <laughs> uh -huh. And it was uh -huh. great. It right. was, I needed to hear that. Right. One of my um, readers, and she wasn't, she wasn't actually a writer, but she said, this was early on, before I had started working with editors and really chopped so much of that kind of stuff out, she said something to the effect of, you know how to say, how does she say this? You know how 
to say something I can say in 10 words with 100 words or something. Point being, I, I would just... I was so not economical with my language at the time, and I would just kind of overblow. And part of it, again, is because of my love of language. I was enjoying playing with it and embellishing and this, that, and the other. But to the reader, it was maybe a little too much and even painful at times. So but for you, it's maybe part of your style. It can be part of your style, at like right. the long sentence with a lot of commas and a lot of phrases. You just need how to know how to vary that so it's yes. not just that and how to make it palatable for the reader so that they'll be able to enjoy it and not be overwhelmed by it. Yep. So to understand what your voice is and how to use your voice appropriately, how it's, it's important that it be different from everybody else, but it's also important that it be, it be something that the reader wants to follow, yep. that you don't lose the reader. That's the worst thing you can do is lose your reader. Right, right. Um, also about dead love, you said in a 2010 interview with Wendy Tokunaga, is that oh, how I said it? Welcome to Wendy great. Tokunaga. You said, quote, I should mention that there is a very lovely supernatural thread that runs through Japanese literature and storytelling. I think some of my work is born of that tradition. And then you also said, my mother was also quite dramatic. So that influenced my thinking and my fondness for a creepy tale well told. And your fascination with the creepy and the supernatural is evident beyond dead love. So um, I was, you know, I looked at your the um, your your page, your profile on the Alan Squire Publishing website, which we're going to talk about. Who is they're mm -hmm. publishing your new anthology? So I was listening to you've collection. done collection. Okay, Different we'll talk from about an anthology. okay, we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, it's a collection, not an anthology. Right. Uh, but anyway, one of the one of the uh, pieces that you read on that is Noche de los Muertos, which is obviously a play on Dia de los Muertos, and. Um, you said, quote, you ended the, the uh, and it's a poem, and you end with, I think it's a poem, or is it just an excerpt of, a, of an essay? It's an Noche essay. It was yeah, an essay. Noche de los okay. Muertos is an essay. Okay. It's a poetic essay. It Again. came out in the Chronicle magazine ah, okay. years ago. Yeah. But you ended with this, and I really, really liked this. Um, quote, the dead never leave us. We leave them, not knowing how to entertain spirits, how to keep them at home in our lives. Tonight we remember... We make room for the dead. So we make room for the dead. And again, we leave them not knowing how to entertain the spirits. They never leave us. What does that mean to you? Um, I think that people, one, one of the things I noticed when my mother had Alzheimer's, um, she ended up um, in an Alzheimer's residence and I would see her all the time. We'd go visit her, Lowry and I would go visit her, my sister would go and visit her. And I saw all these people that were left behind. Now, I'm not talking about the dead here. I'm talking about people who right. have been parked somewhere. And and then people would be upset because they had been for their, their family member had forgotten them. And I would just think, my mother never forgot me. Mm. Even when she didn't know my name, she knew it was me. Yeah. Um, it was that they were forgotten. It wasn't that the person had forgotten them if you don't show up day in and day out and you don't you show up like every month or so of course somebody's going to forget you but then you project it on the other person right um you say it's them and you've really forgotten them and i feel it's the same way with your it's a very kind of asian thing perhaps but with the ancestors that i think that there's a lot we actually contain a lot of the messages from our ancestors both both actually um physically and medically and and um in our dna in our dna mm -hmm. but then we also um from all the things that all of our conditioning and learning and everything that we've been exposed to since childhood so 
I think it's really important to remember those ancestors because but in remembering them we remember ourselves. Mm-hmm. We learn something about ourselves. Yep. And I think that they're a very an essential portion of who we are as people by the time we're older. Yep. You guys just did when I say you guys you and Lowry just did um altars all month that I saw yeah, on your 30, on your social media. Yeah, days of altars. So yeah. tell me a little mm. bit about that because I thought that was just so beautiful and such a moving tribute and such a way to do exactly what you were just ref- what, we're, what we're talking about is keeping those memory alive, keeping those memories alive, keeping those people in in your lives. Right. Well, it was a big thing, and it was. Um, I've done little altars throughout the year, and there's a Asian tradition of having a family altar and everything. Um, but this was really, really important because I was sort of weighed down by things and, and in a depression since my sister died a couple of years back. And I couldn't get out of it. And so I started, I, I the, the Noche de los Muertos was a really important period for our, we had um, uh, a daughter that we lost in hospital and she was alive for basically All Hallows Eve, mm-hmm. All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. So wow. she was alive for those that exact period. Wow. So th- for me, that's a hinge. Mm-hmm. That's a window. And so this was a very personal thing for me, um, my own sort of Halloween <laughs> advent calendar, if you will, where I went through, and it was very spiritual, where um, I went through each day remembering somebody, culminating with the memory of Marissa. Well, not quite, because I put a few after that I felt were less, I, I mean, Marissa was right there at the, the day that I needed her to be there. Yeah. And Lowry was a great partner in this, and we also celebrated some of his family members. And it, and the, it, was, it, it was accompanied by meditation, like a meditation each day. Mm-hmm. So it was a big process, and I found it to be really uplifting and freeing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So we'll incorporate that in future in our lives on a on a regular basis. Certainly not the the entire month. That yeah. was quite well. A I was big so impressed. Commitment. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, <laughs> it was a large was really So and th- so this was the first time you've done that. This isn't an annual thing. I've done it with yeah. a few um, days. On it, the thing is, we wanted to remember those people, and so we would collect things and remember. Oh, look, he really liked um, this kind of wine, or oh my goodness. This person loved to write and did uh, the things that are part of our lives that we got from them and Mm -hmm. the things that we share together. And it was really nice to spend an entire day thinking about somebody and remembering everything that was dear Mm -hmm. about that person. It was Mm -hmm. very, very special. And they felt very close. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think when you're a writer, you need to be going inside and outside of those worlds. Mm -hmm. You have to, there's this permeable membrane that sort of has to exist between you and the other person, between you and the people that have passed, between you and your own make-believe world. There's just, you're you're able to move through walls in a lot of ways, which is a wonderful thing. Um, And so this is very helpful to that process in in my feeling. Yeah, I love that you guys did that. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for sharing with the rest of us, you know. Um, Okay, so let's change gears a little bit, or maybe it's not even really changing gears that much. Let's go back to your childhood. And what I mean by that is Namako. Is it Namako? Is that how you say it? Namako. 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 They don't have um, an actual accent accent on any syllable. Namako. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. So Namako, caught between, this is from the Amazon description, um, because we're going to go straight into a reading, I believe. Oh, 
okay. if yeah, you would like. like to. Uh, so I'm just going to cheat and use the Amazon description of the book, which is caught between being a child and a teenager, 10-year-old multiracial Ellen must adapt to an entirely different culture and new relatives uh, when her family moves to Japan to care for her ailing grandmother. Elegantly written, Namako si Namako si Cucumber captures with startling accuracy and wisdom, this is from Coffeehouse Press, the confusion of a young girl growing up in two vastly different cultures. Now, you just said not long ago in this conversation that you moved to Japan to take care of your ailing grandmother. So clearly some autobiographical things Very. in this story. Right. Uh, so why a young adult novel and why this story? Obviously, like you said, drawing on a lot of your own experiences, why did you want to turn that into a fictionalized story well I had as I said it was a part of a project that I was doing oh yeah, with this Michael is from school. Rubin. Yeah. it was a journal and I just thought wow why don't I just make this into a novel because there were so many incidents and it was taking so much time it was such a commitment in in um, writing and I was enjoying it so mm -hmm. much I wanted to stick with it and I thought you know this will make a very interesting novel and what I was really interested in doing was sharing that sense of being between the two different worlds of um, not being of one and not of navigating that divide, which mm -hmm. is really a lot of what my work is about. You know, genre jumping, jumping from one place to another. I like the space in between. Well, and that's the name of your new collection. Navigating maybe we'll the see. Maybe we'll see. Okay, that's the working title of so your. So far, yes. Navigating your, the divide. Okay, and that was going to be one of my questions. Is what you is do that research. To? Wow. I told you. Yeah, I told you. Wow. I always tell I'm people, impressed. and then I always tell people, and then they say, You're "And Aaron impressed. Byrne loves your altars so much." By the way, Aww. Um, thank you, Aaron. Yeah, I always tell people. Well, no, I do a lot of research, and they say, "Okay," and then they get here, and they're like, "Oh, you you actually do the research? You weren't just saying that." I'm like, "No, I wasn't just saying that." But anyway, it's great. Uh, I want it to be worth your while. I want it to be worth our listeners and viewers' while. Talking with you is always worth. Oh, while, oh my God! Yeah. Oh my God! <laughs> I'm feeling so good right now. Okay, <laughs> would you like to read us a little from? Namako. I, I will, and I actually um, did select something um, that is. May I ask uh, you to come back to the mic for this? Oh, though? this always happens. Okay. People well, get the book and then they they will play. Here it is. Um, I I selected something that I think um, ties in. It's about the bath. Okay, perfect. And porcelain travels. I thought I'm going to get you, you into the bath. Thank here. you. Perfect. Thank you for um, making it thematic in along the lines of my new book. Appreciate yeah. that. All right, here we go. Okay, so I don't know how long I can read for it, but I'll just I'll a read few minutes just because I'm enjoying this just conversation. Just a few minutes. Yes, I told you because I might not get to the bath. I'm enjoying this conversation so much. We're like ten minutes behind, which never happens because I'm so because I want to make sure we get everything in, so I have everything timed. So yeah, just a few minutes, and if you go on for too long, I'll just stop you. Okay, I'm going to do a really short reading. Then I'm going to start. Okay. Um, okay. All right. This is when. Um, I, uh, Ellen is in Tokyo, and she's in her um, grandmother's house, and the maid appears to her and is going to take, and apparently she sees this robe, this pale pink and lavender robe hanging there, and a large bath towel and some geta, which are the little wooden sandals, and um, she's, um, she has to follow the maid out to this little house in the back um, in her clogs, this small patio in this little wooden building that looks like a large dollhouse, and it is the bath. Okay. The bathhouse. All right, let's do um, it. Dozo, the maid said, smiling. She moved politely aside. I stepped out of the geta and up to the raised entrance. The door slid open easily. Hot steam rushed through the doorway to greet me. Dozo, the maid said again. 
I nodded, and stooping a little and continuing to bob my head back my way in, sliding the door shut, I sighed. All of my misery surfaced. Everything was too strange. It was unbearable. I took a deep gulp of the comforting steam. I was ready almost to cry. Behind me, I heard the quick fall of water, the scrape of a wooden stool, and a voice. Kokoni osuari. I wheeled startled to see my grandmother standing pale as marble, a glistening apparition in a halo of steam. Her gray hair was pulled up in a hard, tight bun on top of her head. She was naked. Lanky and thin, the sheen of her whiteness was like death. A faint triangle shadowed the joint of her lower limbs. Her face, implacable, seemed carved out of stone. In her right hand, she held a big wooden dipper. A look of impatience moved quickly across her face. I stood also as though I were frozen, shrouded in curling steam, the kimono still wrapped about me. I did not know quite what to do. Grandmother motioned toward the blue-tiled wall where a couple of empty hooks jutted. I looked sadly down at my pink and lavender robe. With the glum resolution of one condemned, I walked to the wall, took it off, hung it on the hook, my fingers lingering over its folds. Grandmother regarded me critically. She handed me the dipper. In the corner of the room was a round wooden tub full of water with fire burning under it, the source of the steam. It looked like a cannibal's stew pot. Grandmother demonstrated how to scoop the water out of the hot tub and pour it over you. I did as her gesturing indicated, taking a large dipper full of water and pouring it over my body, afraid to make a mistake. It was scalding. I squeezed my eyes shut, trying hard not to flinch. I watched as grandmother pantomimed, washing and rinsing, and pointed me toward the tub. She handed me a tiny white cake of soap and turned, bending to pick up her own, her lean buttocks pointing toward me. Standing outside the tub, she began to watch her wash herself carefully, caressingly, with a rectangle of soap, her hands sliding along her limbs, slipping down her neck around her thin breasts. She took a handful of rock salt from a ceramic crock and rubbed it into her shins, her calves, and her thighs until her lower extremities, buttocks to toes, were streaked a furious red. I'm going to skip some of this. I watched her inhale deeply and groan, her eyes half shut, unaware of me, unconcerned of my child body, my self-consciousness, and my surprise. My body looked nothing like hers. It was not porcelain white. It was nut brown from days in Montana and Wyoming, from days in the desert. I didn't have breasts, just two pink buttons on a flat chest that was beginning to puff out in a couple of hump-shaped mounds. I tried not to pay too much attention to them. When once, years ago, my friend Allison and I had painted our nipples a flashing mercurochrome orange <laughs> using what we thought we'd, what we'd found in the medicine cabinet. The mercurochrome bled through our blouses, making two round stains on the laundered white of our chest. <laughs> our mothers were scandalized. They separated us. We couldn't play together for weeks. I realized then that nipples were off limits. It <laughs> really was best to ignore them. Um, then grandmother climbs out of the tub, and um, she's left alone. And I'll just read this last little bit. Climbing finally from the tub, she tossed a comment over her shoulder offhandedly in Japanese. Hayaku shinasai, hurry up child, or you will dry out or something like that. She dressed quickly and left. I was alone with the hot tub. I climbed into it trying to imitate her, wanting to feel as she felt. I threw back my head and inhaled. It was hot. I thought of the giant 
I thought of the giant king crabs that Jean had brought home one winter, how they bobbed around, blushing crimson in a large cooking pot. We cracked open the bodies with hammers, pulling and sucking the sweet white meat from the legs. I felt like one of those crabs. My body floated beneath me like an alien thing. It was turning bright red. I was getting so hot I thought I was going to explode. I was dizzy and becoming confused. I'm going to be cooked, I worried. And I think I'll stop right there. All right. Thank you very much. Can we get some some applause from the audience? Yeah. The audience loved it. The Great audience center. loved it. Thank, thank you. you very much. And thank you for making it, like I said, thematic. You even got the word porcelain in there. I know. I noticed that. That just jumped out at me. Like, porcelain. I was like, wow. She and is. it's a wooden tub. And it's a wooden tub. And no, there's a, there's a lot of similarities there. And I really appreciate that. And I enjoyed hearing the story itself. Well, it's a, it's one a very important aspect of Japanese life because they're very cleanly, the yeah. Japanese. They like everything to be very neat and clean. Right. So the ofuro, that super hot bath where you're almost boiled clean, is really, really important. Yeah. Uh, do you speak Japanese? No. No. Okay. Well, Even I wouldn't these call bits you what I would say Japanese. Okay. Japanese is a very complicated language. Yes, it is. And yes, it's it, is. it it's very class oriented and you in Japan on. they you're either Japanese or you're not Japanese and you were not no yep all right that I suspect is a whole show that we could do yeah or just read your book or both I would read it read the book once and then we'll I was a show in a reading it. and a little girl in the reading when uh, when this book came out said she raised her hand and I called on her and she goes, could you read the whole book? <laughs> That's and I said, good. I'd love to, yeah. but I don't think anybody else yeah. would like that. Clearly it was well received. <laughs> okay. So speaking of books and speaking of being well received, uh, as, as I mentioned at some point already in this conversation, you have not an anthology, but rather a collection coming out of your work. And this is going to be with, uh, it's going to be published by Alan Squire Publishers. Mm-hmm. And they're so great. I love them. they're great. We love them. So um, for those who do not know about Alan Squire Publishing, um, can you tell us about them? But can you tell us more specifically in the context of how this collection came to be? OK, so I know them from books that they have published before. Um, one of them is for Joanna Bigger, um, my that Paris year, which I just absolutely love. And um, Jimmy and Rose um, have this amazing, uh, it's James Patterson and Rose Solari, who's a poet. They're both writers, which makes it really, really um, special. And they have an amazing publishing company where they do very literary work. They select it. They make sure that it, they're poets and um, novelists mm -hmm. and essayists. And they're people that they really admire and they like the work of. So, they're, um, so it's an honor to be with them. They're also very, very professional. Uh, my first publisher, uh, I've had, I've been very fortunate in having smaller literary publishers who just really go to bat for you. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and some publicists on the on staff. Um, I remember Jim Salar at um, at uh, Coffee House Press, my first press. I, st I we still stay in touch. I love him so much. He's a poet as well, mm -hmm. and um, he was an amazing publicist. And now I have Max Barton at um, at um, Alan Squire Publishing, and there's this whole team of people who love literature. They love writing, and I feel so blessed to be um, numbered with the with their writers. I right. think they're just a great group. Well, one of my questions was going to be, you know, what is the advantage of working with a smaller indie press? And I think you've just touched on that. And it sounds like part of that is is maybe the 
the quality of the people that you're working with. I mean, you've said a couple times these are writers and these are poets who are actually doing the publishing, mm -hmm. first of all. But then it sounds as if you're also getting more attention, which might not necessarily be the case if you were with one of the big six publishers or whatever there. Is that... Well, I like things that are really personal. Right. And I like being part of the... I'm a creative person that likes to be part of the entire process. Yeah. But I also need to work with a team because that's where a lot of the inspiration comes from. Long ago, when I was first writing poetry, the most wonderful um, press was the Berkeley Poets Cooperative um, Workshop and Press. And um, it was Charles Entrican and Gail Entrican and a host of different characters and uh, and quirky writers. Chitra Divyakaruni came out of that group as well. Some Bruce Boston, some wonderful writers came out of that press. And they would let you, um, if you were part of the workshop um, uh, group, you would, uh, the cooperative, the Poets Cooperative, you could, if you wanted to, edit the anthologies, help edit the anthologies, do all kinds of things. So I really um, learned a lot about publishing from them, from um, Gail and Charles, and their readings and their selections. And one of the things that I loved about Charles was, and this is a very hard thing to do, and we're going through it right now, um, with my book. It's called, it's, I think there's a book out called Ordering the Storm. The way to flow a manuscript that isn't necessarily following a chronological order mm -hmm. or, uh, so it's very, it's, it's, that's a wonderful thing that I learned and to do. And we're going to talk more about that. Actually, okay. I have some questions specific to that, so I'm glad okay. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, but this book, so you, this collection is the third in their legacy series, what they refer to as their legacy series. So can you tell me what is a legacy book in this context, what they consider a legacy book? So um, they did a little description of it. A legacy book is um, they find a writer who crosses genres, who's written in a number of different genres. So they're not, um, they can't be, sort of typecast in one thing or another. Um, they're in it for the, the literary, um, the literature of it and the art of it. So they're looking for that. And they're also looking for a writer who has an impact on sort of the world around them, that's, that um, loves to work with other writers, that is contributory to uh, a larger group because that's sort of what they believe in. Right. So um, Richard Peabody and Grace Cavalieri uh, were also writers like that. They crossed genres and they did a lot of work with other writers. Yeah, yeah, so the three criteria, which you did just touch on each of them, but the three criteria, majority of books, so majority of books published by indie presses, active in more than one literary genre, and consistent and influential champions of the work of other writers. So, and like I said, you touched on all three of those, but I just wanted to reiterate those because the third one in particular I wanna bring up, um, or focus on just for a second. So consistent and influential champions of the work of other writers. How did you become, you are one of the biggest champions of the work of other writers that I know. I mean, just hands down, no ifs, ands, mm -hmm. or buts. How did that come to be? I mean, how did that, is it, was that largely out of left coast writers because that ended up giving you a platform in which, which you could start doing that? Or has that just always been the case? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I get intoxicated by people's voices. So I think it's just kind of a natural thing. I love literature so much and I love language so much. And when I hear another writer, I just did a, an interview last night of, um, I, I read some women's fiction. I mean, I'm a, you know, I, I love women's fiction from way back Virginia Woolf. I mean, I just love women's fiction. But um, I read a book, but I don't read it that much. And I read this book by um, Kathy Zane, Better Than This. And it was just, I just felt, wow, look at what she's done here. I, I, mean, I was so impressed by it. And I got to 
be in conversation with her, with her, which I loved. I'll just be seduced by a writer's voice a lot of times. And that's why I think voice is so important. And if I am passionate about it, I, I have to Share let it. everybody know about it. Scream it, it to the world. To, yeah. Yeah. I have to stand up on a little... Um, Podium at Book Passage. Exactly. <laughs> or just a little box and say, yeah. oh my God, this is such wonderful writing. But I've always been that way with literature. I've yeah. always felt that way. Well, I want to formally, publicly say that, first of all, if... Pre so thank you for championing me and what I mean specifically two things, although there are lots of other things. But uh, if you hadn't invited me to workshop Porcelain Travels with you, it probably wouldn't be done right now. I wouldn't be releasing it today. I mean, you reached out to me and said, hey, Matthew, I have this workshop. I wasn't even necessarily ready to do it. I thought, oh, shit, this is a great opportunity. I've got to do this. And oh your help good. was I'm glad you did. invaluable. And I met so many great people in I addition. Know, right? right. So first of all, thank you for that. You're and welcome. then um, welcome. if you had not founded Left Coast Writers and then joined forces with Lily Cat, Melinda Adams, who has the Lily Cat on air show, I would not have started a podcast, which would not have turned into the video podcast. So you are sort of the mother of Matthew Felix on air insofar as getting it, get, you child. know, <laughs> presenting the opportunities. And God knows I have busted my ass, if I may say so, to make it happen. But seriously, you you helped create those opportunities for me. I and did, I really and appreciate I made things it. harder for you. And you made things way, hard, way harder for me. Harder. Way harder for me. Um, but so thank you. And I because the other thing is, you know, um, those are literally two of, of literally countless examples of ways that you have inspired and supported and, again, championed not only me but so many others. So, again, thank oh, you. Oh, it's just, it's just such a joy to do it. It's but so I, much fun. But we really appreciate it. So thank Aww, you. Speaking on behalf welcome. of myself and many others out there. Okay. Navigating the divide, we already talked about um, insofar as where that comes from. But one thing I wanted to ask you, you just mentioned Joanna Bigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is editing and writing the introduction to this collection. So for those of you, I guess we, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Joanna? And then she co-edits, I believe, your, your Wandering. You guys do the Wandering. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about your friendship, relationship with her, and how she came to be the one editing this collection? Okay, well, first of all, she's a wonderful colleague. She's so great to work with. We've done so many books together and taken so many trips together. Joanna used to um, teach in um, D.C., Okay. which is where she um, was originally, um, was uh, lived for a long time. And then she moved to the West Coast. And we did a trip together um, with uh, Connie Burke and with um, Barbara Euser, who used to run the Writer's Center of Marin together. And we just, uh, we weren't on actually on the same trip, but we were both teachers on different trips. And we just really enjoyed working with one another. So we worked on a series of books for them, the Venturing series. And then after that, we, um, when they quit doing the Venturing series, we started this Wandering series. First of all, Joanna's a poet also. Okay. She's a novelist. She's a journalist. So we have a lot in common yep. and a lot of background in common. And she, uh, we edit alike. We look at things in the same way. We mm. look at them poetically. We look at them for to make sure that all the details are correct. Uh, we have a very similar ear and a way of editing. So as a team, we work really, really well together. I'm so fortunate that she's going to be – we're in process right now, and right. she totally gets me. I get her. It's just – A match made in heaven. You know when you have a colleague that you work really well with, it's just a – it's it's a blessing. It's so wonderful. Yeah. So much fun. Yeah. So we never work without wine, <laughs> and we um, – 
we make always make it fun. So we'll usually do lunch, and then we'll have wine, and then we'll work. We edited one of our books in the south of France. We like to go places <laughs> to do this. That we helps, doesn't it? We would go on a, a little adventure someplace. We'd go to, um, to Santa Cruz, or we'd go up to Mendocino area to do our work. So we have a similar way of looking at the world and life. Which, again, makes her the perfect person to help you with this. Uh, to and she's edit brilliant. And stuff. Yeah. She's brilliant. And she's Wonderful brilliant on poet. top of it. I admire her work. Okay, so how are you? How do you choose? Because the collection is going to have long-form, short-form poetry. You have this vast, accomplished library of, of, of your own writing. How do you choose? Well, conceptually, we first we had to come up with a concept for the book. Yeah. And um, so it's divided in, it's a movement. It's like in, in a movement, emotional movement through the book. And so then we're finding the work, a mixture of the work. So it might be a poem, it might be an essay, it might be a piece from a chapter, it might be a short story, that, and a flow that, that, that supports that emotional movement. So mm-hmm. it's it's really that part is really exciting and a yep. lot of fun. Yep. So that the reader, when they're moving through the book, um, it f- it has this emotional flow through it, which right. um, which leads them from one piece to the next piece. To it's ca- quite musical, actually. It's like if you were doing a movement that was on Dante and another one that was a little con moto or something. It's um, once we had a writer do that. She wrote a piece that followed um, where she moved through the Alhambra mm. from room to room and called each one a musical sequence. It was quite beautiful. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. So uh, so she works with you then, again, still on the Wonderland Writers yes. Anthology. Yes, we just did where Cuba's Cuba. coming out. That's right, mm-hmm. so tell me about Cuba. Cuba's great. It's I have fun. never been. You haven't? You should I have not go. been, yeah. Um, we just we are always looking for the next place to go and what we think is really um, would be really exciting. Uh, I love it when people go on trips together and we always wanted other writers to feel as we're both travel writers, um, we've had to put stories together quickly on the on the fly. Mm-hmm. We wanted writers to experience what that's like to go out, find your story, write your story, and then publish your story because that's something if I can interject. The, the stories in these collections are from trips that you've taken together with these writers. Right. And the stories are written on, on the trips. Right. Right. So that's they kind of the concept behind the stories in the collection. They have to have their idea of what they want to write about what before they go. Here's what my story is going to be about. It changes. The process is that it will change slightly. Um, so we want them to manage all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cuba was, uh, Joanna and I did an exploratory of Cuba and just fell in love with it completely. And then decided to take the writers to Cuba. Had right you when been the before? Door had opened. Had you been before? No, okay. I, this w- our exploratory was the first trip. Yeah. And then after we did that, we decided, oh yeah, we're ta- we're bringing the them here. Um, so as the door opened, the the full title of the book is "Wandering in Cuba: Revolution and Beyond." Yes. And we wanted to get away from some of the stereotypes and the cliches about Cuba because mm-hmm. it is a place that has been. It's in change now. It's always in trans. It's, it had a period where it was kind of locked into this, you know, this identity. Right. But now it's in transition. Good, bad, all the things that happen as a result of that. So at this moment of transition, we wanted to sort of capture mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I definitely think that we were able to do it with all the voices that have come together in this particular book. And it is a moment in time. 
Right. It was a moment in that. It's already changing again. Right. Right. Change is inevitable, particularly with what with what they have going on. But given that and this is this is a big question that, again, could be probably an entire other episode. But I'm just curious, um, particularly given that you had never been before. And again, on top of it, the the major changes that are happening right now, particularly when you were there. What are some of the things that most stood out for you? About Cuba? Yeah, about Cuba. Well, that the people, I, I mean, I knew nothing about Cuba when I first went, which is um, probably a good thing. A mm-hmm. lot of times when I do a travel story, I try not to get too immersed in the um, details or the history, because a little bit of the history, but I, I want to go with sort of a, um, a Zen state, a Zen mind, right. you know, where right. it's open and you are experiencing it for the first time. So that was really a good thing. I was... Um, we have these misconceptions about Cuba. Such I mean, as been well, that they're communists. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, that they were always communists. I we discovered that they were a socialist country to begin with, and were forced into communism because they needed. We had an embargo. We had we weren't giving them anything that they needed. Um, there were so many things that I did not know about. The whole Bay of Pigs thing I didn't know about. There was a there was a period where um, right after. Castro took um, was uh, became took the power. leader of of Cuba. That they um, when his they um, took a bunch of children. It was called um, Operation Peter Pan, mm-hmm. and sent them to the United States, Cuban children, because they were the um, U.S. was promoting this whole thing that these children would be not safe anymore. So they were taken for their families and moved to the United States through religious organizations and never saw their families. Really? Oh, God, that's so horrible. Well, not so different from something that's happened recently here. Yeah. So a lot of these things I didn't know about, and they know about them. And so that was really interesting, seeing a different point of view. Yes. And the people were wonderful. I mean, we love the people and um, their, their spirit, just their... I don't know if they're as equal as they seemed, but they there did seem to be this equality um, across society as a yes. whole, sort of thing. Interesting, it was amazing. Like we stayed in this one place, and they um, they have the free quarters for people from the street downstairs in the same building that other people have own their apartments. Right. So it's a in more integrated kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly their education is um, pretty universal. Well, I think uh, don't a lot of Latin American countries send their people there for, is it for medical training? Medical yeah. training is They're the best in Latin America, or at least they used to be. Che Guevara was a, a physician uh-huh. originally, uh-huh. and was um, his, his focus was on leprosy. Oh, really? Yes, on the lepers. And when he did his first motorcycle trip when he was very, very young and still in med school, the goal was to go up and work with the lepers, which he did. And um, so... The medical, uh, the the chance for people to have universal medical care was always an important part of um, what they were Their trying vision. to do for people. Right, right. Mm-hmm. How long ago were you there? Was this trip? This was. It sounds like a, a few years ago. Twenty. It was twenty seventeen. Tw- oh, so this was just last year. Yeah, last year. Has the we mass do this quickly? Yeah, yeah. Well, because you said you know the door was just opening and things, so I'm just curious. The door's just opening, but. Had the mass influx of tourists and cruise ships and that sort of thing started? It had or started, and it, they were gearing up for it, which is so sad because they... Um, Did it get curtailed, though, when mm-hmm, Trump came into office? Mm-hmm. Yeah, We saw yeah. it before and after. Yeah. 
in one year. Oh, because year, you went to your we the fact finding trip. We went on our fact then, finding, uh, yeah. and everybody was gearing up, and there was all this optimism, and it was very exciting. And then the second time when we went back, things had things were already. This you know, there was all this right graf- anti-Trump graffiti on the walls and stuff. It, things were already these people who were seeing an opportunity, ironically, to um, be um, to be capitalists in a way. They had right. their own little businesses. Right. It put the kibosh on all of that, right. which is so sad. Sad. So sad. Yep. Uh, I just want to mention before we move on from the Wonderland series that you have. Uh, many other anthologies in the collection. You have Andalusia, Cornwall, Costa Rica, Bali, Paris, I think Ireland. I think there are even a couple more. So people can check out. There's a long collection. Anything else that jumps out that I forgot to mention there? No. Yeah. There's quite a few. What is it again? It's Wanderland Writers Anthology Series. So check those out. Uh, Do you have a next destination for the next one? Have you gotten that far yet? Greece. We're going to Greece. All right. And when's that? We're going to Greece in June. And... Open um, enrollment at this time. Oh, perfect. Uh, it's going to be a marvelous trip. We did Greece in the Venturing series, but we went to Vatica. We did a wonderful book, Wandering in Vatica. And now we're going to be up in the, that was in the Peloponnese, southern Greece. Which is the peninsula, And now we're going islands. to be up in um, Athens and around Athens. So okay. it, um, it'll be really, I've been to Greece many times. I love it so much. And we have good friends there. Um, who are helping us put it together. It's going to be a super trip. Mm, always it's great beautiful. to have the locals involved and get the inside scoop on things. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what's You have a website for that, and I have it in my notes later. Can you just, while we're thinking about it, the Wandering Wonder, what's the website? Wanderlandwriters.com. Wanderlandwriters.com. Okay, and I will mention that again at the end. Let's talk about, I, uh, we've mentioned it a few times, I've mentioned it on many other shows, Left Coast Writers. So this, what is Left Coast Writers, for those who don't already know, although most of my listeners and viewers probably at least have some sense, because like I said, I've brought it up so many times, but just give people an idea of what is Left Coast Writers and how did it come to be? Well, so it's an organization, it's just a group of writers who um, hang out together <laughs> and it's it all uh, sort of, it it's based around a salon that happens at Book Passage. And the way it came to be was I um, I was working, I had a group that I was working with, and then I um, then that group fell apart. I started to work with, an, I, I started to work solo on things, and I was missing the whole sense of community that I, I love so much. So I went to Elaine Petrocelli at Book Passage and said, you know, I think I, th- or maybe it was Margarita Castanera who was there at the time. Well, it was, uh, everything goes through Elaine, so it was probably Elaine. And um, said, you know, I think we should, it was Elaine. According to my notes, it was Elaine. It was Elaine. <laughs> I'm not even remembering when I called her. I told Larry, I'm going to call Elaine. Uh-huh. So I called Elaine, and I said, well, I think we should do the salon there. And Elaine was like, she's always up for anything new and exciting and fun. And she said, yes, well, let's try it. And then margarita helped us put it together and we thought maybe i thought maybe all eight people but then people kept calling and calling and calling and um then she's like should we close this we have like 40 people and i i said no let's just keep it open and so we just let anybody who wanted to join because we found out i was right there was a need i mean writers feel like they're in this garret they don't know anything so the whole premise around it was to bring experts in the, the literary field so the writer would have more dimension. It wouldn't just be them working alone, not knowing what goes on any place else. So 
was to have publishers come. I I benefited from that. Sure. Agents come, um, uh, promoters and um, publicists come. Just all writer, angles, other all authors aspects. in various right. genres. Right. Um, it was, and it worked really, really well. It has worked really it well. It still does, yeah. And the wonderful part is the people who are involved. Yes. You turn around to the next person and they've got new books coming out. They're often more interesting than the speaker. <laughs> Not tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, not tomorrow. Mm-mm. No. Tomorrow and so then, the, then they had all these, everybody had all these books coming out. So then it was like, okay, so we need to do events for these people's books. So because a book is like when a baby is born and it's like, oh, somebody has to be there to receive the baby when the baby comes out. So we started to do the launch parties and things like that. And that worked out really, really well too. And I, it's been one of the uh, parts that I enjoy the most is watching somebody launch a new book. Right. Right. No, it's just in all sincerity, again, it's just a great organization. I'm so glad to be involved. And it is there. You just you do so many different things. And I've met so many great people. And I didn't have that community before. You know, I didn't have that community. And to have that community is just such a gift. And I've met so many great people. And so fun. Yeah. And just to know, you know, and what are other people doing and what other. Yeah, it's just it's. I just like great. that we all drink together. And the drinking is <laughs> great too. The fact that you always That's bring so wine bad. to the events is is most it times, added most times. Yeah. Well, nine times out of Things ten, go better there's with wine. wine. Yeah. Things go better with wine. Everything goes better with wine. Um, okay, so uh, oh, I have one question though. How are we? Okay, so uh, we're already over on time, but I have to ask. Are this. we? Are we finished? We're not finished, but oh. we're over on time about by fifteen minutes, and we're still not done. But that's 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 fine. I thought it was a long period of time. I know. I, I told shocked. you. I know. You said, "How are we gonna? We're not gonna have a th- anything to, enough Let's just to talk, talk about for an event. hour." We'll just talk. Let's talk till my event. All right, <laughs> but I need to save my voice for tomorrow. You said so when I was researching you, I came up because of tomorrow's event. And I saw that you had posted about my event, which I thought, oh, that's great. She posted my event on the Left Coast Writers website. But then I read the first line. Do you know what you wrote? Do you remember? No. (laughs) Quote, please join us for an uproarious. And I was like, that's great. But and then you said, and sometimes rather far fetched evening with Matthew Felix. What does that mean? Rather far fetched. Well, far fetched. You go all over the world. Oh, far flung. Far flung, but also far fetched. Okay. I wanted to sort of make it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So you were trying to you were trying to generate that in in more. I was trying to be funny. Okay. Great. It was hilarious. But you are, (laughs) and it was. Okay. And I think you could be far fetched. I can be, but I just, I just, I didn't know if you were trying to suggest that the stories. Because the stories oh, are all like truth is far fetched at all. But they're no, but they actually (laughs) happened. The point is, there's like. Anyway, okay, again, once again, we're venturing into a whole other episode here. Uh, I just, that just, that line just st- stood out for me. Okay, how do I join Left Coast Writers? I contact Book Passage. You do. You don't right? exaggerate at all in your stories? Very, very little. No, really? it's, no, very little, honest to God. And that's why I wrote the stories is Not because. Not the humor. Humor is based on exaggeration. Well, there, there's some, but really the reason I wrote these stories in all seriousness is because of truth being stranger than fiction. Like most of these things, like, yeah, I might have done been a little creative. It's creative nonfiction, but I really didn't exaggerate that much. No, and I didn't mean it to sound like you were making a bunch of stuff up. Okay, for the record. That's on record. Okay. Workshops. This is the last thing we're going to talk about because I want to uh, make sure that people know about your workshops. So uh, just tell us a little bit about workshops and then because I know you have one coming up in January, but give people yeah. an idea of kind of your 
the sort of thing you do in general related to workshops, and then we'll talk specifically about what you're going to do in January. Yeah, so I really like working um, with writers, especially writers in a group. I haven't done one for a while um, where it's a mixed genre group and people get to hear one another's work and understand what everybody, you know, what the other person is doing. And I find that it's very, very inspirational for all the writers that are there together. And it's also really good for them to all be involved in the craft discussion. Um, so I've been teaching workshops like that about craft for a couple of decades now. Yeah. And, um, and I tried teaching in a college situation. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, it was way too much bureaucracy. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. The difference between a, a workshop and a class. Mm. I just, it was just like, and a lot of people were th just there for the grade. They didn't want to actually be doing it. Mm -hmm. So this way, everybody that I work with really wants to write. Like, right. Yay, that's such a wonderful thing. Yeah. So, um, so that's why I started doing that more. Uh, the class that's coming up at Book Passage in Corte Madeira, I'm very excited about. Um, they have this Path to Publishing program, which I think is an excellent program. And it teaches the writer, it, it acquaints the writer with the entire publishing process. And, you know, it's like when you're cooking, do you just want to know how to cut the carrots? <laughs> or do you want to know how to do everything? I want to know it all. Yes, exactly. And I think that um, any kind of creative person wants to know more. They want to go outside and figure out how this connects with everything else. So I think it's a wonderful program. In this particular class, it's because they're relaunching this program, I thought it was very appropriate time, and Elaine thought so too, to have this, this workshop about what you do when you, you're on a publishing track and where what you have to think about in terms of creating the work, um, getting the work published, marketing the work. It's a complicated process. It and is. the more somebody knows about it before they get involved um, or along the way, the easier it's going to be on them. And they're not going to make some really some really um, beginner mistakes. And which there are um, so many to be made. Aren't there? <laughs> yes. There are tons of mistakes that right. you can make. So many pitfalls. And so as many of those as we can and, uh, avoid, avoid is a good thing. Right. Right. Okay. So that workshop is again. That's on January twenty sixth. January twenty sixth. And it's only a few hours, but it's going to cover a lot of information. Okay. And people can already sign up for that. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Through Book Passage. All right. So the last thing I'm going to ask you is in um in your again two thousand. I don't, actually maybe I haven't mentioned this interview yet, but in your you did an interview with Ralph Potts in two thousand ten. Oh, yeah, wow, that was a long time that ago. That was eight years ago. Rolf. Rolf, yes. Yeah. And you said, quote. Uh-oh. Yep. <laughs> they come back to haunt I know they do. Uh, oh, this what is, is it? This is a good one. I think this is a really good one. I think you'll actually like this one. I don't think you're going to dread this one. All right. Quote, and it's very, it's very straight and to the point. I silently mourn the stories not told. Oh. So off the top of your head, what's the most compelling story you haven't yet told? Not just my stories. It doesn't have to be yours. Yeah. But that, that you haven't told. Or um, yeah, what comes to mind when I say that? What comes to mind to me are books by people that I think um, they've they've written what could be a, or the beginnings of a wonderful book, and they haven't followed through with it. Mm -hmm. So for me, I mean, I'm a little compulsive. Like, when I read a book, I actually can't stop reading the book until I finish the book. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a compulsive thing. Yeah. So when somebody starts a book, and I think, 
this is so good. And then they don't finish it. I'm left hanging. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God, that story's not finished. And it was so wonderful. So I think that's what I'm, I'm, my own stories, I'll eventually, I'll write them at some point. But I can't, I have no control over somebody else who has this beautiful story, a song that they haven't sung, and they're not going to finish it. And it just sticks there. I will mm. remember the story for, for such a long time afterwards. I'll, I might re forget the person's name, but when I see them, I'll remember their story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those are the, I think yeah. those are the things that, um, it just drives me crazy when somebody doesn't complete something that I think is really You know beautiful. they're on to something. Oh, yeah. and it's just like, yeah. I think that the best books ever written were never published. Mm. Some of the best books ever written were uh, never published. That, that, that would make sense. Yeah, that would make sense. And that's a sad thing. It is. We'll never hear them. We'll never they hear were them. killed in their cradles oh. by their parents. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> on that happy note, <laughs> on, on that happy note, where we're going to wrap up this conversation. Uh, I am going to throw out four links for Linda. L W McFerrin, M C F E R R I N dot com. Of course, all these links will be on my website. Uh, L W M C F E R R I N dot com. Wanderlandwriters.com, as we talked about a moment ago. Leftcoastwriters.com. And of course, bookpassage.com. Linda, this was awesome. Thank it was you fun. very much. I can't for being wait here. till tomorrow. I can't wait till tomorrow either. Thank you for that segue. Uh, that tomorrow, my party. Thanks to Linda and Left Coast Writers to uh, to launch my new book. I hope a lot of people travels. come. I hope a lot of people come too. Uh, but thank you. But thanks for being here today. Thank you. We could have done. I could have gone twice twice the length. Um, all night. But I think we, we could have gone all <laughs> night. Just okay. get out the wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we have wine over here that we will be busting out very shortly. I can't drink before a show because I have to do the cameras and listen now and you all can. that. But now I can, and I'm looking forward to doing that. All right. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. And thanks to Lowry for being a good, a good guest over there or a good um, audience a, member over there. A quiet guest. That is all <laughs> for today. Uh, next week, Savani Babu is here to talk all about dark sky conservation. Cool. Thank you for watching and listening. If you like the show, please share on social media and subscribe, rate, and review on YouTube, iTunes, and or Google Play. That is the only way the word gets out, and I really appreciate your help. For more about me, my website is MatthewFelix.com, and links to my social media, books, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. And, of course, all the rest now includes my new book, Porcelain Travels, so please go check it out. Uh, if you have any comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I would love to hear from you at FelixOnAir at MatthewFelix.com. Thanks again for watching and listening, and have a great week. <laughs>